All right, there we go. Okay. Well, good evening and welcome to Encounter, or whatever we're calling it these days. Again, Scott Irwin muddied the waters and he got another encounter ministry going on. Um, tonight we'll be talking about Elijah the prophet. So um, if you thought that Paul dragged out of the scriptures a bunch of names you didn't know last week, we'll be going through some more familiar territory this week. Um, but before we do, um, Jim has been getting lots of requests for a bit of an update on what he's up to. He is in Thailand right now, and he will be, um, he'll be back Friday sometime. But he sent me some info on what's going on there and ways we can kind of be aware and be praying for him. So he sent this. He said that he's been in Thailand teaching at a conference of church leaders among the Lisu people. This is a group that lives in Myanmar, Thailand, and China. He's been teaching on how to interpret and apply the Bible in a way to remove the aspects of culture that are not Christian, while at the same time retaining all the aspects of the culture that are helpful to the Lisu people. So how can we take a Jewish and uh, basically a Jewish book and apply it into a Southeast Asian culture. Jim asked that we pray for the Lisu churches in those countries to carefully and accurately work through these issues. Um, and then he, he was texting me earlier today and he said that he was in a meeting yesterday um, talking about what it might look like to help um, work on a new translation of the scriptures into kind of their modern language. The Lisu people don't really have um, they, they, they're a very small people group that have a very unique language, and, and Jim said that their scriptures just aren't altogether um, adequate in terms of having them in their languages. So um, he's going to come back with all sorts of excitement, I assume, about what that might look like and how we can be a part of it. But continue to pray for um, the work that he's doing there, and that God would be glorified among the Lisu people. It seems as though he is quite certainly working there. We are in um, the back half of 1 Kings. We're going to finish up 1 Kings tonight, and we're actually going to go two chapters into 2 Kings. Like I said, we're going to be dealing with Elijah the prophet. Next week, Jim will come in and finish Elisha, his counterpart that he kind of anoints before his ministry is done. But we're going to be dealing with Elijah the prophet. And uh, before we even hop into the, past, into the text, um, I want to ask this question. Why even study Elijah the prophet? Outside of the fact that some of the stories are hilarious, um, and outside of the fact that they're just incredibly interesting stories of this prophet working through um, the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom, why study him? Is it just for the sake of knowledge? Is it just for history's sake? Is it just to have a little more information and another wrinkle in the brain? Or are there actually like profound practical reasons to study these guys? And I really do believe there are. And, and there's three things that I think we can glean, among others, there's three major things that we can see from, um, from the stories of Elijah in First, in, in first Kings and the beginning of Second Kings. One, we can see that God or Yahweh is always true to his character. Whatever it is that he does, whatever it is that he says, whatever it is he calls his people to do is altogether consistent with who he is. And Elijah does a masterful job of explaining that, of exposing that to people, and exposing in the leadership, that is King Ahab primarily, exposing in the leadership of Israel 
where they are falling tremendously short. And he just, like, God's character is the standard. And, and we study Elijah because we can see that quite well. Two, we study Elijah because he was the authoritative voice of God. And that is going to be a resounding theme throughout tonight's um, study. When God speaks, basically the, the implications are listen or else. And when Elijah speaks, he truly is the mouthpiece of God. When Moses spoke, he was the mouthpiece of God. And when these men bring forth a prophetic message, when anything in Scripture starts with, thus saith the Lord, a failure to listen has dire consequences. And we'll see this play out throughout the life of Ahab and his very famous wife Jezebel as they, de- as they interact with this prophet named Elijah. Um, one, one good example would be 1 Kings 13. Um, let me see. I think verse 14. 1 Kings 13. Did I write that down correctly? No, I wrote down the wrong reference. Ignore everything I just said. So go back to 1 Kings 17. Don't have time to go hunt for it. The third reason that we study Elijah the prophet is this. We today are actually representatives of the true God who speaks. And this is unbelievably important in, a, in any culture, but I, I'm used to my culture, right? So this is incredibly important here and now today. Because if you recall, last, early last fall, we did a series, a preaching series called Winter, where we were talking about how the gospel engages with the culture around us. And in Elijah and in the other faithful prophets of Israel, I see this very real ability um, and, and desire to not just withdraw, to not just say, well, that is wicked and I'm not going to have any part of that. That doesn't serve to glorify God and therefore I'm just going to remove myself they constantly engage and they, they challenge people to recognize God for who he is and that your, like, your call is to repent and follow him. And that, that weighs heavily whenever I think about, well, if I am a representative of a God who speaks through his word, through his spirit, through his people, I, what, is, what is that tendency in me to come up against opposition or encounter those who don't agree with the God of the Bible and just say, okay, well, that's good for you. Like, I won't bother you anymore. That's really not the biblical model. It's, no, I'm going to represent the true God of Israel, the true God of all creation, and therefore I need to represent him well, and I need to call people to him, even if that is an offensive message. And we certainly see that in Elijah, who, again, his encounters with both the prophets of Baal and with Ahab and with Jezebel are just hilarious. He is, if, if you guys, if any of you like me struggle with having a bit of a sarcastic part of you, that you just want the Lord to redeem, Elijah will give you hope. He is so sarcastic. He just mocks anything that would be contrary to the things of God. And so I, I really enjoy studying through um, his his stories here, starting in 1 Kings 17. Now, we are, this is a pretty decisive point in the book of 1 Kings because thus far we've been studying in a series called The Kings of Israel and Judah. 
And so this is going to mark with the, the ministry of Elijah, this is going to mark a very new epoch, if you will, a very new period in the time of God's people. Because if you recall, from the time of Moses, when God cut a covenant with him at Mount Sinai, all the way up to the period of Judges, God's primary way of interacting with people, with his people, was through his high priest. That was the mediator. That was the one through whom God spoke primarily. After that, you see Saul come on the scene when, when Samuel, the last judge, anoints Saul, and then he anoints David, and you have Solomon. All of a sudden now, the representative of God to the people are, is the king. And we see this throughout the book of 1 Kings, and at the end of Samuel and 1 Kings. We see that the kings represent God to the people. And then we see God judge what has gone wrong. And now you're going to see him shift. He's not going to speak to the kings. The high priest is, by this time in Israel's history, almost irrelevant. He's going to now speak through prophets. And with Elijah and then Elisha, and not long after, you're going to have Isaiah, you're going to have Jeremiah, you're going to have Ezekiel, you're going to have all these incredible men of God who are going to speak on God's behalf and, and challenge the nation to repent and follow him. So you, you had God speaking through high priests, through kings, and now at 1 Kings 17, we have him beginning to speak primarily through his prophet or, or the men of God who would be the mouthpiece of God. Now, you'll notice that your notes have this weird indentation thing going on. So Isaiah, or Elijah's story really is quite symmetrical, and we see this in Scripture quite a bit. His story will unfold in four chapters in such a way that it will kind of fold back in on itself for the remaining four chapters. This is known as a chiasm, but that word is pretty much irrelevant. It's more about this story will parallel this story, and therefore when the Bible does that, you really need to pay attention to the apex, to the, that climax, because that's what the Bible is asking us. That's what the writer of First Kings is asking us in the story of Elijah to really pay attention. This is the point of Elijah's story. So you'll see that your notes are arranged in A, and then if you flip on the back, it has a corresponding A prime. B B prime, C, C prime, D, and D prime. And you'll see when we get here to the points marked D, you have two accounts of Ahab's sin. And this is the point. This is why Elijah shows up. Elijah shows up to challenge King Ahab and call him to repentance, call him back into covenant with God, and he does so in this fashion. So we'll see the story progress like this. So I kind of wrote your, your notes there so that it, it follows that, that pattern. So let's then jump into our story and, and see how this unfolds. So 1 Kings 17, Elijah literally just shows up out of nowhere. There's no real talk of him before. It's just, uh, it opens up. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So Elijah walks on the scene to the king of the nation, and says, guess what? I speak for God himself. We're shutting down the clouds for three years. That's what it's going to end up being. Whenever I say it can rain, it can rain. It's going to be a while. I'm closing this down. I speak on God's behalf. 
Now, this is important because Ahab has thus far been identified as quite the idolater, one who wouldn't follow Yahweh anyway. He has a very famous wife, Jezebel. This is what it says in verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east in the Jordan. And so he goes over here and then God takes care of him. So Elijah shuts down the rain. A famine ensues, and God provides for him elsewhere. The one who speaks for God has spoken in judgment and is now leaving. This is, this is an act of judgment, leaving the land, taking God's word. with. So what we should hear is God has defeated whatever gods it is that Ahab is worshiping that he would expect would continue to allow the rain to fall and the land to produce God has defeated them, and then he has, in judgment, left. And God is not speaking in the land anymore until Elijah returns. Um, It's fascinating when Elijah appears, walks up to the king, and he is the one seemingly with all the power. He can make it rain. He can make it not rain. Ahab can't do either one. Elijah goes in a, in a famine and just lays down by a river, and, he, and birds bring him food. He seems unbelievably powerful. Ahab has his guys out looking for food just to feed his animals. Let's just go look under every bush. Just find something for us to eat. He is altogether impotent. He has no power, and Elijah holds all the power. And then it really is an act of judgment when he leaves, where you'll see in, throughout these eight chapters, where Elijah goes, and thus where the word of God goes, life breaks out. Dead people are raised. When, it wa- when he wants it to rain, it will rain. When there is a famine and he needs to eat, food shows up. With Elijah and with the word of God, there is life. And then there's, there's this this dark other side where those who refuse to listen to the word of God experience nothing but hardship and death and judgment and famine. These eight chapters are all about, I mean, that's, that's the title of the lesson, words of life and death. Will you listen to them or will you ignore them? To listen brings life. To ignore them brings death. Now, if we recall, Jezebel is a Baal worshiper, and Elijah's going to have a little of a confrontation with the um, prophets of Baal in just a bit. Now, Baal is an interesting um, god. He was known to control the clouds. (laughs) He was known to control the weather and the fertility of the land. And it all of a sudden becomes abundantly clear to everyone around, he doesn't have as much power as we thought. Because this Yahweh prophet shows up and just shuts it all down. Baal experiences quite the defeat here. He'll experience more in just a second. Baal is now um, sitting in the catalog alongside the gods of Egypt as God defeated by Yahweh. If you recall, the ten plagues of Egypt were ten judgments against ten Egyptian gods where God defeats the fertility God as the firstborn dies, where God defeats the God of the Nile as the Nile turns to blood, where God defeats all of these things. Those are assaults on the gods of Egypt. And when God shuts down the rain, he has thus defeated Baal. 
and he reigns supreme. This is, um, I, I love the Old Testament so much, especially the prophets, because there's just such this beautiful picture of a cosmic war, of God just calling every other low, like lowercase g God out and crushing them. Baal is rendered impotent. And then he, he goes um, in verse eight, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Sidon is actually the region from which Jezebel came. This is Jezebel's home territory. He says, I want you to go back to Jezebel's area. And he goes and he dwells there. I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he goes and he encounters this widow and he asks her for a drink, and then he asks her for some food. And she's out gathering sticks. And he asks, why are you gathering sticks? I'm going to cook these for me and my family, and we're just going to go die. It's that bad. We're going to eat these sticks and then die. And, and Elijah says, can you, can you make me, like, some bread? <laughs> can you make me some cakes? And she's like, do you not hear me? I just, I'm, I'm cooking sticks. And she says, I just have a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And he says, don't worry. That, what little you have, will last you until I tell it to rain again. So Elijah retreats. He goes to find this widow in Jezebel's hometown, in her home country, where her gods, Baal and others, can do nothing to produce food. And she says, yeah, we're just going to die. And the prophet of God walks in, the prophet of Yahweh, and says, no, it's going to be fine. There will be food enough until I tell it to rain again. Baal has again been defeated. And then the, son, the widow's son dies. And, uh, and she looks, and she, she, she's talking to Elijah. Have you come to, like, to, to, to curse me? Oh, man of God, have you come to, to undo me, to call me out for my sins? And, and, and Elijah just cries out to God, how could you have done this? And then God raises him from the dead. So the, God is more powerful than Baal in Israel, can hold the rain back if he wants to. He's more powerful than Baal in Baal's hometown, can provide food when Baal cannot. And now he can raise the dead. He's more powerful than death. Israel, Baal's hometown, and death. God is just breaking down barrier after barrier. He is no local deity. He is establishing himself in this first chapter of Elijah's uh, ministry. He's establishing himself as the absolute sovereign of all things. Powerful in Israel, powerful in Sidon, and powerful in Hades over death can bring people back. This has been a, uh, this, this chapter sets the stage for Elijah to return and to challenge the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal. So if you go to letter B there, we'll do this. Elijah departs. He'll depart again at the end in the corresponding A prime. And then B, you have the uh, battle of the gods. And this is a, one of those great chapters that most of us know at least a little bit of the story. So Elijah, if you go to the beginning of chapter 18, 
It says this, chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year. So three years of famine and of no rain, saying, go show yourself to King Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, Ahab hasn't repented yet. How incredible is this? Because if you look at your notes, we're asking the question, is the God of the Old Testament harsh or merciful? Because the Old Testament is usually a caricature of God, that he is some um, wrathful, angry God with an attitude problem, that he just needs to calm down. But I'm so glad we have Jesus, who's just more laid back and mellow. Read the Old Testament. Ahab does not deserve the mercy he's about to receive. He has not repented. And God says, go back, I'm going to send rain back on the land. It's an incredible picture of God's mercy and of his grace. So, Elijah, he's going and, and, and he encounters a, a faithful man who works in Ahab's, uh, in Ahab's palace. Or, uh, his name's Obadiah. He's been hiding the prophets that Jezebel has been um, searching out and looking to destroy. And Ahab goes up to Obadiah and says, hey, go tell, uh, or, or Elijah goes up to Obadiah and says, go tell Ahab I want to talk to him. And Obadiah says, are you nuts? He hates you, first of all. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna go tell him I found you and then you're gonna run away and I'm gonna come back and you're not here and he's just gonna kill me for lying to him. I know how this goes down. And and Elijah says, no, I'll be here. Go tell Ahab I wanna talk to him. And Ahab comes in, if you jump down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? He hates Elijah. Later on, you'll see like he's, he has no faith that, the, that these prophets of God bring anything but news of destruction. I'm like, maybe you should repent and the news would be better. But he hates Elijah. That phrase, you troubler of Israel, that was actually the phrase used of Achan back whenever he, uh, whenever he stole the, uh, the, the, the goods from whenever they, they went and they, they were sacking the cities and they were supposed to devote the whole city to destruction and he took some artifacts for himself and he hid them in his tent and they realized, wow, we just lost to Ai. Ai is a real little place. I can't believe we lost here. Now, somebody did not listen to God and did not destroy everything. And he, and he and his family, he was described as a troubler of Israel. He calls Elijah a troubler of Israel. And Elijah tells him this, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Elijah says, I'm not the troubler. But we're about to have a showdown. Get all your prophets together. Meet me on top of the mountain. And then this is one where I could just tell the story, but it's written so well. I'm, I'm going to read most of this. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions, you flip-floppers? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He's saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Realize one of these is real and one of them is fake. Follow one or the other. And the people didn't answer him a word. (laughs) Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now he is putting it all on the line here. And the people answered, it's a well-spoken, that's a good idea. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves. He lets them do everything they want to do. You pick the bull. You pick the bull. I'll let you go first. You tell me when you're ready to go. Just let me know. And they chopped this bull up. They put it on the, the pile of wood, and they don't light it on fire. And now they're just calling out to Baal to, to light this sacrifice on fire. And this is where I fall in love with Elijah because he's just like, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you should yell louder. Do you think he went on a trip? Should we wait for him to come back? He said, maybe he's relieving himself. Did you check the bathroom? Where is your God that he can't light this on fire? And they're cutting themselves and, they, and it takes forever and they finally have exhausted themselves and nothing happens. And then you have to just, Elijah, I think with his chest puffed out, kind of walks up and says, all right, let's build my, he, he takes the 12 stones and rebuilds this old altar and the 12 stones represent the 12 nations of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. He, he butchers the bull and he sets it on top of the dry wood and then as if to make it more complicated, he says, all right, now just soak it with water. He digs a trench around, and they keep pouring water until the entire sacrifice, all the wood is soaked through, and the trough, like the little trench around, is full to the brim of water. And then he speaks, and it bursts into flames, and Baal is defeated. It's this incredible story of God's supremacy over this God that he has already defeated over and over and over, which should tell us something about the human heart that will continue to go after false gods even when they've been soundly defeated. So Ahab, though God did offer to send rain, did not repent. And he allowed this challenge between Baal and Yahweh to take place. And Baal is, is clearly defeated. And then Elijah tells everyone, round up the prophets, brings them down to the river, and then Elijah just slaughters them all. Now, this seems real bloody and kind of mean. Shouldn't we have given them a chance to change sides? But this is really like a, a, a second telling of another story. If you go back to Exodus 24, when Moses creates covenant with God, and God speaks in fire on the mountain. And then when Moses comes down the mountain in Exodus 32, and they have built up a golden calf, does Moses just give everybody the chance to repent? He ratifies the covenant again. And then to purge Israel of the evil, he slaughters everyone who, had, who took part in this idolatry. I wonder if my modern heart is so desensitized to the vulgarity of idolatry that I always want to give someone a second chance. And the Bible seems to say like that, you don't understand how offensive it is to God that you would chase after other gods. I'm like, let's just give him one more chance. And the truth is, I mean, we can see throughout this, this story that they've had many chances. They've had three years to sit and think about it. And yet they still follow Baal. But the covenant is renewed 
The prophets of Baal are purged from the land and Elijah runs out ahead of Ahab back into the city where Jezebel lies waiting. (laughs) Jezebel has no redeemable qualities from what I can tell. This woman just, why Ahab, what do you see in this woman? She has nothing good about her. But before he gets there, the Lord sends rain. Elijah goes up on the mountain and he prays and he sends his servant up hey, look over the horizon. No, nothing there. He continues praying. Look seven times, and then there's this little cloud. And then finally, the land receives rain again when Elijah calls it back after three years. So you have this cosmic battle of the gods, one that Yahweh wins handily, which brings us to um, chapter 19. 1 Kings 19 is where Jezebel starts to um, work her magic. And uh, it says here in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. May the gods cut me down, Elijah, if I don't kill you like you killed my prophets. That is the quintessential picture of a hardened heart. Her God has been crushed, and she refuses to repent and submit to the true God of Israel. So, Elijah is going to to dash off and complain to Yahweh, but you're going to see, in so doing, Ahab's death is secured. God explains to him how this is going to take place. Ahab will die for his crimes, for his failure to lead the people back to Yahweh and for his failure to um, continue to, uh, to, to trust in the words of God coming out of Elijah the prophet. So Jezebel fights back um, just when it seems as though Ahab will again follow Yahweh. And it really does, like, the, the chapter 18 ends in a strange way where it's like, well, I think Ahab got it. He's going back to explain to Jezebel, like, okay, God, Yahweh, the true God of Israel, he really is more powerful and, and more worthy of our worship than Baal. He goes back and Jezebel just undoes everything that takes place. She threatens Elijah's life. And we ask them, why does she pick a fight when things are good? Um, part of me wonders at the hardness of her heart, but part of me realizes that maybe she didn't pick the fight so much as Elijah picked the fight. Faithfulness to God really is to announce the judgment of the world, judgment against the world. Have you ever wondered why um, the conversion of a new believer, especially if they come from a family or a group of friends that are largely unbelievers, why their conversion isn't well-received? It's less about not being happy for them, that they have this new spiritual thing. It's more about the implicit judgment that now comes down on me. Like the, 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 true, the, the true things of God are offensive, and they bring judgment down on people. If we look at, uh, I hope I got this reference right, John 12. Where is it? 
This is in um, this is in the back, uh, the middle of John's Gospel. So, verse twenty-eight of John twelve: "Father, glorify your name." Then a voice came from heaven and says, "I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again." Verse twenty-nine: The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him, and Jesus answered, "This voice has come for your sake, not mine." Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And it's in that death, like he, the, the, the ruler of this world will be cast out, is, is standing stark in the face of Jesus' own righteousness and God's approval of him. And so Elijah when God verifies the things Elijah says and does, he is implicitly judging everything about King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel. Elijah really was the aggressor in this, going after her gods and bringing them to their knees. And then when she comes back after Elijah, he retreats. And it says, uh, where is it? So he ran for his life to Beersheba, and then verse 4 of chapter 19. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Very reminiscent of Jonah. Saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah at this point feels that he has failed as a prophet. He has demonstrated the supremacy of God. He has spoken the words God's asked him to speak, and yet the nation hasn't turned, and they're actively trying to kill him. He says, I've done no better than my father's. Just kill me now. I want to die. And he lays down and slept under this broom tree, which is a, a symbolic sort of death. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat, a symbolic resurrection of sorts. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Again, wherever Elijah goes, life follows and he ate and drank and he lay down again. And then the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat again, another symbolic resurrection for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Another name for that is Mount Sinai. He, Elijah is ready to give up and die because he feels as though he's failed as a prophet. And God resurrects him in a symbolic way twice and then sends him back to Mount Sinai where he originally cut his covenant with Israel. He restores him to his prophetic ministry and nourishes him to the point that he can now carry on again. And then the Lord goes and he speaks to Elijah. This is, a, this is an incredible little scene. Elijah says this in verse 10, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, for the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, much like Moses. So much of Elijah's story parallels that of Moses. And you'll see it's quite fascinating how much of Elisha's story, the, the prophet that follows, parallels that of, um, of Joshua. 
Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, much like Moses. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Um, Wind, earthquakes, and fire. These are common images in the Old Testament for the coming of God, the advent of Yahweh himself. And it's amazing that each of these is demonstrated and God's not in those. And And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he repeats his same thing about he feels that the nation has failed and he feels like he's the only one left. And the Lord said to him in verse 15, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you're gonna do these three things. He says, I'm going to tear down Ahab in three ways. One, you will anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. I want you to go anoint a Gentile king. Two, I'm you going to go anoint Jehu king over Israel. You're going to anoint an Israelite king. These two kings that are going to function as the two swords of Yahweh. And three, you're going to call Elisha to be the next prophet. These three ways, God is going to judge King Ahab. Verse 17, and the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And he says this, and this, is, this would have been music to Elijah's ears. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And then I'm not going to go too much into the calling of Elijah or Elisha because that will be next week. But then he goes and he calls Elisha, and Elisha is with him from um, that point forward. But Elijah has a valid complaint. I feel like I'm the only one doing any work around here, and the whole nation has rejected you. And God says, I know. By the way, not everyone has rejected me. There's more people doing the work. There's 7,000 people you're not even aware of. And that king that has refused to follow me faithfully, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring his family to an end. I'm going to ruin his dynasty. He will only, we'll see, only his son is going to live. And then after his son, the dynasty is over. King Ahab's dynasty comes to an end. I'm going to do it with a Gentile king, with an Israelite king, and with a new prophet to carry on your ministry after I'm done with you. Ahab's death is absolutely secured. Which brings us then to the very middle section where we deal with Ahab's sins we see that Elijah judges the nation by leaving and then he returns and you have a battle of the gods and then he comes in and Ahab's death is prophesied and, and it is absolutely secured. And now we're gonna deal with the center part of the story, why Elijah is there. He's going to call Ahab to repent and you're gonna see that Ahab does a brilliant job of doing exactly the opposite of that. And Ahab is going to be guilty of three things. And this, this has been pretty profound for me to study through. Because it's not just Ahab. This, this bleeds through the whole Old Testament. Ahab is going to fail to represent God well before the nations. You're going to see that God is going to hold him accountable for how he deals with Syria, a Gentile nation. 
Ahab is going to do severe violence to one of his Israelite brothers, a man named Naboth, who no longer has a vineyard. So he does violence to the nations, he does violence to his brothers, and he ignores God's words from the prophets. And when you see the kings of Israel being judged and being toppled and God manipulating governments, what he holds them accountable for? Ignoring his word, doing violence to the nations and representing his name poorly and mistreating his Israelite brothers. Those are the qualities of a bad king. Doesn't take care of his people, doesn't work well with other nations and does not listen to God and does not worship him well. And these are the reasons that Ahab is going to be brought down. So this brings us then to chapter 20. Ahab spares the Gentile king, Ben-Hadad. <clears throat> Ben-Hadad is a, a king from Syria, and this is, this is his game. He sends a messenger down to Ahab. says, hey, you're going to pay me tribute. You are going to, here's how he puts it. Your silver and your gold are mine. <laughs> your best wives and your children, they're mine. I, I think I would be shaking if I was the messenger bringing this. this. I've seen 300. I, don't, I know how it doesn't go well for certain messengers to go challenge another king. Your gold and your silver, they're mine. Your, the wives you like the most, I don't want the ones you don't like. But the ones you like the most, they're mine. And also your best children, they're mine. And this is Ahab's response. As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. And you have to assume that Ben-Hadad goes, well, that was easy. Okay, I'm gonna ask for more. He says, I sent to you saying, deliver me your silver and your gold. This is in verse five. And your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I'm gonna send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they're gonna search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Like, I'm literally gonna come through and say, do you like that? Okay, well, that's mine. Like, show me your favorite TV. That's mine. Whatever pleases you, I'm taking it. And now he gets worried. I was gonna give you my gold and my silver and my wives, but now you want my stuff. Hmm. So, King of Israel calls all the elders of the land and said, what do we do? And Ben-Hadad, you, you skip down a little bit. There they said, don't, don't listen to him. Don't give in. Do not become subject to the Syrian army. And this is uh, King Ahab's response in verse nine of chapter 20. All that you first demanded of your servant, I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and they brought word to him again. Ben-Hadad sent, sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if the dust of Samaria <laughs> shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In effect, I, because you won't give me your stuff, I'm gonna come tear everything to the ground. Just bring it to the ground. This is holy war now. This is holy war. Then Ahab just mouths off. He says, hey, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. <laughs> he says, you're talking like it's already won. You haven't even put on your armor yet. You're acting like you're already at home taking it off. Bring it. And then, and then the, king, the other king says, Ben-Hadad says this. He's drinking with his kings in his booth and he just looks at him and says, take your positions, we're doing this now. It really is kind of this, they're spitting over the wall and then finally, okay, we're gonna fight. Like this is out of control. I just wanted your stuff. Now I'm going to kill you. 
But this is fascinating because God sends a prophet. And God is far too kind for what Ahab deserves. Verse 13, the behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, thus says Yahweh, have you seen this great multitude looking out at the Syrian army? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, not for your sake, so that you will know that I am the Lord. This is the God that we will chastise for being too harsh and severe. And if it were my call, I would have just let Ahab have it. He says, no, I'm gonna give this army to you. And I'm gonna do it in impressive fashion. You're gonna use 232 men and then just a couple of thousand others. And you're gonna defeat this overwhelming army, not for your sake, but so that you'll know who I am for my sake. And they do exactly that. The Syrian army thinks, wow, we shouldn't fight them on mountains anymore. They're really good on mountains. Clearly Yahweh is a God of mountains. So they said, well, let's come back and fight them in a valley. I wonder if our gods are really powerful in valleys. And Israel defeats them again. And everyone is killed and the Syrian king escapes. And then Ahab is warned. Um, just so you know, they're, they're gonna come back. We need to, he says this. They return. Verse, sorry, I'm looking for it. Verse 28 of chapter 20. A man of God came near as the army is returning, said to the king of Israel, thus says Yahweh, because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Israel just crushes them again in the valley. Again, never for Ahab's sake, but for the Lord's. And they captured the king. And this is Ahab's great sin. They capture the king, and he makes a deal with him. God says, you're going to crush everything. They were going to, it was holy war. You were going to devote everyone to destruction. They captured the king, and Ahab said, is he still alive? He is my brother. And then the men were watching for a sign. They quickly took it up and, yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. And they said, go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to King Ahab, look, don't kill me. Instead, let's do this. The cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. You can have your old cities back. And you may establish bazaars. You may establish shopping markets in Damascus. He cuts a deal with him. And rather than be obedient to Yahweh, it says King Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. And by breaking his covenant with Yahweh, he says, so he made a covenant with the Syrian king and let him go. Ahab's first sin was unmerited kindness to a Gentile nation. He, it, where's my good marker? Here's one of those to throw away. There it go. First sin is with the Gentiles. Second sin is going to be with a faithful Israelite. Ahab once, if you go to chapter 21, Ahab kills. Instead, he shows mercy in chapter 20 to an evil 
Gentile king. And then chapter 21, really Jezebel, under the leadership of, of King Ahab, kills a faithful Israelite for his land. This is Naboth's vineyard, and Naboth has this, this wonderful plot of land next to King Ahab's um, palace, and King Ahab wants it for a vegetable garden, it says. He wants a place for his vegetables. And Naboth says, I can't give it to you because this is my inheritance. This, when the tribes divided up the land, when Israel conquered Canaan, and God said, this is how we're going to divide up the land. This was the land given to me by my fathers. To give it away would be to break covenant with God. We have one man in the nation that wants to maintain his covenantal faithfulness with God. And King Ahab goes, well, I guess there's nothing we can do. And he goes home and sulks. It, the, the text is hilarious. He goes home and he won't eat. He's just real upset because he can't have his vegetable garden. And Jezebel says, hey, you are the king of Israel. Why are you acting like, just take it. And she says, I'll handle this. You're terrible, I'll handle this. And she goes and she sends a letter with Ahab's official seal to, to uh, Naboth's town or village and says, hey, declare a fast and find two scoundrels. Put, Nahab, or put Naboth at, the, at the, the head of the table at the fast and get two men to falsely accuse him of cursing the God and the king. And they do exactly that. These men falsely accused him in front of the other men of the town. And so um, Naboth is taken outside of town and stoned to death. And his garden, his property, becomes property of the state. And Ahab has his garden. Ahab is found guilty of refusing to purge the idolatrous Gentiles from the nation, instead making covenants with them. And then he's guilty of killing those who were bent on being faithful to God's covenant in Israel. Guilty before the nations, guilty before his brothers. It's, it's quite fascinating to, uh, to flip over. We don't have a whole lot of time, so I can't read the whole thing, but to flip over to Matthew 21, 21. You would wonder if, his, if Jesus' audience would have had this in their mind when he tells this parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, Jesus says, and put a fence around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to him. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when they saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Then he asked, what will the owner do when he shows up? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And, and as, as Naboth is attempting to be faithful to God, to be a faithful Israelite, 
to hold on to the land that he, he obtained when they pushed the Canaanites out of the promised land, Ahab, who worships Canaanite gods, is pushing Israelites back out. And in a sense, re-Canaanizing the land. Undoing what God has done in his covenant. Next comes the account of King Ahab's death. And again, held accountable for his failure to hear the words of a prophet speak. Verse, chapter 21 opens up like this, or chapter 22, I'm sorry. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. Things are going fine between Ahab and Ben-Hadad. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah, that would be the southern two kingdoms, is clearly at this point not quite as powerful as Israel in the north, as King Ahab. He came down to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? He said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? Basically, should we reunite Israel and Judah to go after the king of Syria? And Jehoshaphat says, sure. Then he says, can you first ask a prophet if we should do this? Think we should ask a prophet if this is a good idea. And Ahab says, sure, I got got a couple hundred prophets lying around. They all say it sounds like a good idea. And he goes, well, maybe we should ask of like one of those Yahweh prophets. (laughs) And Ahab's like, no, I know of one, but I hate that guy. He never has anything good to say. And and, and Jehoshaphat is insistent. No, I think we should talk to a prophet of Yahweh about this. Fine, okay. So he goes and he he sends for a prophet named Micaiah. And Micaiah, this is again where the sarcasm bubbles up and gives me hope for myself. He says, Micaiah, uh, verse 13, the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. They're saying, go to war, it'll go well for us. Let, please, 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 you say the same thing. Don't make this worse than it has. Just say the same thing that they said. Micaiah says, hey, whatever, whatever the Lord says to me, I'll say that. And when he had come to the king, verse 15, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? (laughs) And Micaiah says, go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And you have to wonder what his tone was because the king answers back, how many times shall I make you swear that you will speak the truth to me and nothing but the truth in the name of your Lord? He's like, I know you're lying to me. I know you're being sarcastic. And he says, if you do this, the sheep will be without a shepherd. They will scatter. Basically, if you do this, you're going to die, Ahab. And Ahab does what he is prone to do, and he ignores every word that he's supposed to do. And he goes into battle. But he's going to outwit the God of the universe by switching armor with King Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat looks like the supreme commander rolling around, and the, the Syrian army goes after him. And they get close enough to see, oh, that's not Ahab. And they stop. And then the text goes out of its way to say a random arrow almost fired up into the air just randomly hits Ahab right here and he just randomly dies. Saying like, no, God is so sovereign. 
that whatever little game you try to play, you will be judged for your sins. So his death was secured up there. I lost my marker. And then we see it coming back down from his sin, Ahab dies. Before he died, however, he did repent very briefly for his crimes against Naboth. And God said, because you've repented, because you've put on sackcloth and ashes, I'm not going to judge you. The nation's not going to end with you. Your son will get to reign, but they will end with him. And God is, again, merciful. Which brings us then to the beginning of of 2 Kings as we start to transition away from Elijah towards Elisha. Elijah has one more battle royale with the gods of Canaan. And you have King Ahaziah is now, um, Ahaziah, sorry. King Ahaziah is now in power. This is Ahab and Jezebel's son. And he has fallen from a, from a certain height and he's injured. And he sins people to go inquire of a Philistine God so that he can be healed. Beelzebub, you might have heard of him. Go, I need to be healed. Go there and God intercepts him <laughs> with Elijah, intercepts his messengers. And, and I love this line. Elijah says this in 2 Kings 1, verse 3. It's little. Elijah intercepts his, um, his messengers and says, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, the God of the Philistines? Are you doing this because you forget that Yahweh is in power? He says, now Ahaziah is not gonna recover from this because of his wickedness. And here's how Ahaziah responds. Like Elijah goes up on a little mountain, on a little hill, and he just waits. And Ahaziah sends 50 men to get him. And Elijah just prays and fire falls from the sky and consumes them. I just love this angry prophet up on the mountain shooting fireballs at people. The first 50 get out. They're just roasted marshmallows. So Ahaziah's brilliant idea, I'm gonna send 50 more. Let's just see what happens. And they say, hey, Elijah, come down. And then just fire. No. Tells them no. Ahaziah's brilliant idea is to send another 50. And these guys are on to it by now. And they say, hey, please don't kill us. Just don't kill us. We recognize that your God is powerful. Just come down. You're very angry. Come, come on down. And then the story just ends. Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord. He did not recover from his illness. And then chapter two is, a, is one of those famous scenes where Elijah departs again. This time, he departs, this time leaving um, Elisha to carry on the prophetic ministry. Uh, I won't write that. You guys know what this is. Elijah's ministry is complete and he tells Elijah to stay behind, stay behind, and stay behind and Elisha won't. He wants to come with him all the way to the end and they, they split the river Jordan and then God in his spirit comes down in a chariot and a fire and, and takes Elijah up and Elijah is left there but before this happens, he is asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit and he's going to carry on this incredible prophetic ministry and he, and he returns back to the nation um, Elijah departs in glory. 
Now I want to, I mean, we're, we're out of time, but I want to just look at this last little bit. Why do we read stories like this? Because when Yahweh speaks, it matters whether or not you listen. King Ahab and Jezebel never figured that out. King Ahaziah never figured that out. Jehoshaphat barely figured that out. When the prophets speak, when it is God speaking. So following Jesus to follow him is to hear and respond to his word. That's why it matters for us today. Elijah isn't here today calling us back into covenant with Yahweh, but the scriptures are. The teachings of the apostles are. The words of Jesus are. The word, the spirit, and the people of God are present today, and Yahweh speaks through all of them. Though we do not have Elijah today, we certainly do have God's prophetic word giving us all that we might need for um, life and so that we would know God's will. And then our response to this word will be judged, as Drew so, so well preached on Sunday. Our response to this word will be judged, and that's the end of Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine, says Jesus, and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So we got the same deal in effect that Elijah's audience had. When God speaks, there is no other choice but to obey. No other choice but to obey. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your scriptures and for the testimony that you left us of such great men as Elijah and his counterpart, Elisha. Pray that you would help us to to engage with these stories as more than just interesting, but as incredible pictures of your character and your expectations of your creation. Help us to find you in your scriptures and to discern what it is you want from those of us who were created to do what you want. We love you, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.